Escape from Plan A. Listeners, welcome to another episode of Escape from Plan A. Uh, very excited to uh, introduce our um, uh, episode today. Uh, we have on uh, Q. Hi, everybody. How's it going? And uh, our special guest, Mike Nguyen. Hi. Uh, happy to be here. Yeah, happy to have you too. So I'm really happy to have you here because uh, Mike wrote this really awesome article about um you know like like yellow peril supports black power and just kind of uh like his thoughts on you know the asian american movement from the 60s and 70s and how we can learn from that today which it seems like a lot of uh like these asian you know like young liberal kids have forgotten because like uh i don't know do you just want to like talk about your article because we we all really liked it yeah um Really, it just it was coming from like general observations I was making at the time. Um, a lot of Asian people, uh, a lot of well-meaning Asian people, were trying to figure out, you know, how to really show their solidarity with um, Black Lives Matter and like the cause for Black liberation and all that. And um, I think the intention was more like, you know, Asian Americans as a whole. I think we're very conscious of. You know, besides the yellow power, yellow peril supports black power movement, um, we have a long history of failing to show up for the black community. So, a lot of I think a lot of Asian people were trying to send the message that hey, we're Asian, and despite you know failing to support you, we are supporting you now, and we're trying to make up for our past failures. But then there's a concern from another side where, um, you know, we can support black lives, but hey. We don't have to like, you know, say like, hey, we're you don't have to say that we're Asian and you support black people, you know, just 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 do it, which I think is a very valid, valid criticism. But um, after some point, trying to point out, ha- trying to tell people how to decenter themselves has become kind of like a thinly thin thinly veiled call for inaction almost because any real attempt to um i don't know meaningfully try to show that the asian community stands with um the black community it kind of gets shot down because you know a lot of liberal asians are like hey no don't do that because it decenters black voices you know so that that's kind of that's kind of what i was thinking and that's that's kind of what made me start writing that article in the first place, I guess, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, I feel like it's like very self-centered and kind of conceited for these people to be like um, focusing on the yellow peril part, right? Because they're not just saying that it decenters black power. They're saying that it 
it's bullshit to begin with. Like they don't understand the concept of, you know, like yellow peril or yellow power at all. And they're just kind of like using their like ignorant uh, modern perspective to shoot down people who are actually doing organizing on the ground. Um, I think it also, uh, it also is another way of just like these Asian liberals spending more time, attacking other asians than they are doing anything right because like you sent me that you know that like instagram post that stupid fucking ugly (laughs) it was ugly ass like uh like boxes of text about how you know like we should focus on like you know like like basically just like talking down to the rest of the community and telling them what not to do and it just pisses me off because this is exactly the kind of like intra community infighting that helps white supremacy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like those kind of graphics are like a dime a dozen at this point, you know, like for every Asian that tries to go out and support black lives, there's another Asian creative armchair criticizing how to actually do that, you know? And mm-hmm. to me, that feels very hypocritical because like at this time, why are you trying to have this kind of intercommunity discussion? Like, how does that not decenter the cause for Black Lives that's happening right now? Yeah, exactly. It's like stop arguing about how to support Black Lives and fucking do it, assholes. You know, <laughs> and um, I I feel like uh, the the Gen Z, you know, like because like I'm a millennial, but you guys are younger. You know, you guys are like just uh, like college, just out of college, and I feel like really inspired by um basically like the militancy which with with which you approach you know supporting your own community and other communities and also just like the amount of knowledge that you guys have just like acquired for yourselves you know like you're you guys are very courageous uh like i was thinking about um you know like diaspora's red he'll just straight up be like death to america you know with three k's and i'm just like damn that is so fucking baller and i'm not like i have this like fear of the government of the like white institutions and the government that uh has kind of for a long time like maybe not not able to do that like i i wouldn't go that far but i want to now and so i just i kind of wanted to like have this discussion with you um because you guys are like much so much further along in uh your political ideologies than you know the previous generations of asian americans and i feel like we have a lot to learn from you and we should support like the movement building that you guys are doing so i don't know yeah just like go go talk about like what you believe in and like the kind of society that you want to build based on like your readings and your experiences just go off man just go off (laughs) (laughs) oh man where do i even start uh yeah that's such a big uh demand (laughs) yeah well okay like maybe um like you mike you sent some really awesome readings like do you want to just uh talk about those Oh yeah, um, let's see. What do I? Let's see. I guess I should talk about um, the most recent one I found actually. So I, I guess going back to like 
the arguments on how Asians should show solidarity for Black Lives. You know, there is um. I think Diaspora is Red said it best is that in retrospect, we kind of take these moments in history uh, where Asians, you know, did support black power. And we kind of think of them as just like token little moments in time instead of instead of just images of an actual of a bigger movement that was happening at from that time, you know. And then seeing that graphic that just claimed that um, the yellow power movement was just ripping off. The black power movement i kind of i i felt like that was nonsense because every like um there's an article called yellow power the formation of asian american nationalism in the age of black power uh riff, written by jeffrey ogbar in his article he writes um about uh the creation of the third world liberation front in the bay area and um Berkeley's Asian student newspaper um, it provided a history of the Asian student movement and it directly credited the black power movement for influencing the formation of these militant Asian American organizations that had the exact same goals as the black power movement and they were all doing work for their own communities yeah, I found that article especially inspiring um, because even reading like a couple lines out of it would immediately disprove this silly ahistorical notion that yellow power was just like a copycat or like a plagiarist uh, interpretation of black power when it was directly in line and was synergistically involved in that process. Like even one sentence, and I can just read it out right, right now. The yellow power movement and other forms of radical ethnic nationalism were not solely dependent on black power for symbolism, political direction, or motivation. In fact, the black and Asian movements necessarily influenced each other in alliances, networks, conferences, and general dialogue. Like two sentences and it immediately flips the notion on the head that Asian Americans have just been like apolitical and own a debt to a group that we have not had any interactions with whatsoever. Um, it really is just sickening to see people pretend like we just appeared out of nowhere and are white adjacent. So much of this is just like a projection of their own interpretations of how they fit into the racial hierarchy of America and then pretending that the rest of Asian America fits into that mold. And then also the entire history of Asian American fits into that mold, which they like learned last week or whatever. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's like, you know, it's one thing to acknowledge that the black power movement precedes the Asian American movement, but it's another to just straight up claim that we were just doing it to, we started up to derail the black power movement. You know, it, it doesn't make sense. Like pe people of color, black or not, all had the same enemy, white supremacy, capitalism, imperialism. What kind of allyship is it if we just sit back and not only let black people lead the fight, but do all the fighting themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. You had a tweet, I think, that was directly addressing this infographic and the phrasing that you used um, to describe the call to action that so many of these people want us to be is to be like a passive cheerleader, to sit on the sideline and kind of like mimic white liberals who want other color uh, people of color to do all the work for them. It just puts you into a position where you really do uh, like Asian Americans are expected to be seen as directly white adjacent and just copy 
um, other movements or whatever. Like it's it's like an incredibly nihilistic interpretation of how to address the problems in our society uh, and to kind of buy into the logic of uh, white liberalism and identity politics without taking a further step. Like the call to action, I think, is a direct indictment of um, like this understanding of history. Yeah, and also it presupposes that Asian and um, Asians in America don't have those same issues and don't share a lot of the same burdens, you know, like, um, like Asians are also victims of police brutality. And we live in a lot of the same uh, neighborhoods that black and brown people do. And there's a lot of Asians that you know, like are victims of uh, redlining or, you know, like uh, predatory bank loans and stuff, in addition to just, um, you know, violence, like person to person violence. And just like it erases all of that, which like the white narrative of model minority, like, that is what they do. So if you're saying, oh, we should be allies, we should be cheerleaders, you are doing the work of white supremacy. I, I wanted to bring up this article. Uh, it was published in the Amerasia Journal. Um, it's called This Tree Needs Water, a case study on the radical potential of Afro-Asian solidarity in the era of Black Lives Matter. Um, it's written by Janelle K. Hope, who is a scholar of Afro-Asian solidarity. And um, she wrote a case study about in 2018, how um, these two Sacramento police officers uh, shot a 22-year-old Stephen Clark in South Sacramento. And it was, um, the shooting took place like a few minutes away from Sacramento's little Saigon district where he was in an interracial relationship with um, his Southeast Asian fiance. And um, basically this case study about was actually about how the Asian community can stand with the black community in this current era. And so um, it, it really got me thinking about like how like you know this really is our history isn't just you know some long gone thing from 40 years ago this is a thing we can still you know pick the legacy up and and prolong mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, for sure yeah i think this raises the really important question um and this is something that mike you talked about in your article the difference between uh, organizing and, and solidarity in that organizing versus allyship do you want to talk a bit about what that distinction is because i think the argument that some people might make is that like this um like call to action for introspection and like recognizing our privilege and uh, soliciting donations is uh, on like on social media or whatever it could be considered a kind of organizing like how would you go about defining what organizing is and how that distinguishes uh, the work that you wrote about in your article versus what's kind of happening right now in these like liberal spaces yeah so when people get together and organize, you know, like it's a really fucking hard thing to do, by the way, because, you know, people are always going to butt heads about something. But if you get together and work together about something, it means that the common enemy you have is really serious enough to actually warrant, you know, doing that, you know? So when you realize that, hey, this is this cause that you're fighting for is a lot, is, you know, you're fighting an entire system. One person can't do that. But then when people get together, 
and they decide to make themselves a tangible force and they put in the work to produce meaningful material results you know that's kind of what org- organizing and showing solidarity in an organizational context means to me um allyship on the other hand um it's become from what i've observed allyship has isn't just a concept it's an entire framework of how to address issues um but in my opinion it's very individualistic and unimaginative um i kind of want to challenge myself to avoid like using the word performative because it's so so i'll say it's like it's shallow and self-aggrandizing you know like Mm -hmm. when you when you talk about being an ally it's really become a label that doesn't take too much effort to learn you know um, all you have to do is learn the three R's, recognize your privilege, reflect on your privilege, and renounce your privilege. And <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of like the framework a lot of like so-called white allies adopt, you know? And mm-hmm. That sounds Asian- like reduce, reuse, recycle. It's like the same <laughs> goddamn thing. <laughs> yeah, it's because they're so far removed from the material reality of what racism means that they can only interpret it in like these weird corporate... Uh, slogans that they have to memorize and put on flashcards or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, some of those infographics that we look at and we talked about, you know, they kind of like look like a business slideshow. Yeah, so that's, mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, like some PR firm or stuff, like management consultant wrote it up to help people like not be racist at work. Yeah, like, it, it, it's, you know, maybe I like pulled out like from a, a draft of a Vox video or something with one of those professional from one of those professional explainer dudes but <laughs> it <laughs> but yeah like this kind of framework of allyship this is a thing that like so-called white allies pick up you know and the fact that Asian Americans are so keen to work inside that too like is that not a reflection of how Asian Americans really believe how white adjacent they are but and that's just that's just my general observation you know like you know like when you when you look at that you know picture of like a crowd of white people like gathered around and they're like kneeling down with their hands up and they think that they're gonna be suddenly exorcised of their white privilege and all that shit you know that's that's what i feel like asian americans are trying to get in on and it doesn't make a lot of sense to me you know like Maybe if you want to put in a little more work, you'll repost a link to a petition every once in a while to gain some extra activism credit. But they're also like obsessive about confronting their family members like anti-blackness too, without a recognition of where that anti-blackness even comes from. Mm-hmm. Right. It's it's a supposing that it comes from the same uh, vitriol, as, you know, and like systemic um, oppression. Or not even a pressure, just like it comes from this. It does. It's this. It's assuming that it comes from the same place that white anti-blackness comes from, and it's just totally different. And I think if anybody gave it any kind of thought, they would realize that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the issue here is there's like a limitation in their imagination. They can only perform or simulate the guilt that white people feel without realizing that the situation is entirely different. That's what happens when your analysis is limited to uh, understanding race through the 
kind of lens of identity politics without connecting it with things like class, with imperialism, uh, like with the kinds of violence that America enacts on its people here is the same violence that it enacts outside of its borders. Um, like the, the imagination is, is so limited. Um, Audre Lorde has this really good uh, quote about guilt and how guilt is the ultimate protection for changelessness because it is just a way for these people who see themselves as white adjacent to absolve themselves of that guilt, to perform like a kind of penance and then get published in NPR about how they perform that penance to help white liberals feel good about their guilt too. But guilt doesn't do anything. Guilt doesn't galvanize people to organize. It should be anger. It should be frustration. Um, we should be emphatic about the reasons why we organize. Um, and guilt doesn't do any of those things. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's a very individualistic approach where you reduce, you know, entire systemic issues to just interpersonal interactions, you know. Um, but they st- a lot of people still chase allyship because, you know, they keep doing it and until they get to a place where they think they're not anti-black anymore. And then your identity mm-hmm. as an ally is pretty much established. You know, like it's it focuses so much on the individual and what they can immediately do without questioning where you go from there, you know, in terms of trying to like tear down systemic racism. And so that's why I'm really so skeptical of it because that's like, you know, that's, we've seen male feminists, white people, LGBTQ allies use ally as some kind of crutch to deflect criticism from the marginalized people they claim to support as well too, you know? Like on the surface, they'll say, yeah. oh yeah, I'm learning all this prejudice is a lifelong process, but, and that nothing they do will ever be enough. But they don't really like hearing that kind of criticism from the actual marginalized people. So then they just kind of use it. They just argue back and use ally as a shield or they'll ignore criticism completely. So when I see Asians mm-hmm. and really non-black people of color in general, who's to say we can't end up doing the same, you know? Like this clamoring for allyship seems to to me to be a way to to try to grab some kind of get out of jail free card in the event that they'll be caught being anti-black in the future so solidarity on the end it's much more demanding you can't turn solidarity into an identity like ally because it's a verb when you hear organizations and political parties are standing in solidarity with each other they brought themselves together to reach a mutual objective there's no room for individuals Mm -hmm. to make them look good for an audience right yeah, because the work that's necessary for you to be able to change the material reality for both groups to accomplish the mutual goal is a lot more demanding than like uh, putting an Instagram post about how you're an ally. Like it's just so much more work. And ultimately, these individuals just aren't willing to do that work because a lot of it aligns with like class interests. Like it, these individuals who kind of parrot white liberal talking points are ultimately kind of in the same uh, like professional managerial class that requires them to keep. Uh, you know, participating in the systems of oppression that they're not willing to relinquish because of their paycheck. Yeah, and those are the people that always get more exposure, you know, in the media, and that get the uh, the the they, they like go viral, and then they perpetuate these fucked up narratives about all Asians or like all people in a certain community. When, <laughs> that's totally right. Yeah, and it cre- that's that's what creates the monolith is that these people take their own guilt and uh, n- like need for performance and self reflection, and just instead of actually doing it themselves, they just push it onto other people in their group in their communities who don't have a platform, 
and then that creates a like the perception of a monolith in these communities when there's lots of asian grassroots organizations that are doing the work that are in solidarity and they're doing a lot of organizing on the ground with blm and in support of blm and they just don't have the microphone the way that these fucks do mm-hmm. i mean ultimately ultimately it's an issue of projection like they truly do believe that they are white adjacent because their class interest demands them to be yeah and i mean they are as individuals i'm sure they are um but and they just assume that every all other asians are because they've racialized their own experiences yeah absolutely and like the rhetoric that they use really uh kind of points to the question of what we're talking about the difference between allyship and solidarity um kwame Ture has this really uh, quote, and uh, I can link the lecture in the show notes later, but he talks about the difference between mobilization and organization and how mobilization is always around issues and events. So you like, you go to a protest and you're like, oh, I went to the protest. It was an event that I went to. Organization is about systems and revolutionary action to change those systems. Uh, that's why mobilization has the tendency to lead to things like reform and like the, mm-hmm. uh, what is that's it, like important. Campaign Zero's eight-point plan. You, like they these events happen momentarily and they appear out of nowhere. There's no explanation for them. Revolutionaries have to be concerned with systems and how these things came about, how they came to be. But that would require us to think critically about how we participate in those systems and who contributes to those systems being upheld. Um, that's just an analysis that a lot of these individuals just ultimately aren't concerned with. They want to be at the event. They want to be at the ACL or the performance or the protest or whatever. Yeah. So I guess my question is, there's always going to be people that don't give a shit, that just want to be performative. But I think the majority of people, you know, they they are well-meaning and well-intentioned. It's just that they don't have any good frameworks to actually put their good intentions, you know, to, to, to any meaningful change. So, like, what... What do you think needs to be done or taught such that like those people can actually participate, start participating in organizing and like understand what's really going on? Hmm. Or I mean, I guess maybe more like, how did you guys go from, you know, like, the mainstream narratives to where you stand today because like you didn't you didn't take a class from this on this or anything and like like we i mean mike we grew up in the same city and like uh all of us kind of grew up in these like uh, more conservative areas and our parents are either more right-wing or apolitical so like how did you guys how did you guys get to where you are um I think like uh like going back from what you said earlier, you know, it's I think it's I think the thing is you got to you got to find people who give a shit, you know? Like we're always going to be in some kind of network or social circle and there's got to be a chance that there's somebody there who's will, who's already radicalized and willing to put the work into helping us move in that same direction, you know? Like I was radicalized because I ended up in this group chat with a with a with another friend and 
he introduced me to another acquaintance who lived in Hawaii, who is a Korean, um, Korean Marxist Leninist and living in Hawaii, they kind of recognize the reality of like settler colonialism, you know? So a lot of my jumping off point came from her and I guess, I guess that's really where it took off, you know, like, you know, how like people say, you know, personal is political, you know, and so then put personal connections lead to political direction kind of. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, there's always like a personal connection that makes you realize how you have maybe played into these systems and how um, you, as a result, have an obligation to address them. Uh, a lot of my political activation was uh, like as a young person, I kind of saw what was happening with the Arab Spring um, and saw that like, you know, something was happening and mobilizing people, but I didn't understand what systems were at place. Like a lot of my political activity was like helping people sign petitions and stuff like that, kind of mirroring um, people's analysis of the situation happening in Yemen right now. Like they see that something bad is going on, but they don't understand why. And so like the call to actions are usually insufficient. Um, but what really pushed me over the edge, I guess, to uh, understand the way that the world works, I have like a deeper understanding of the way the world uh, looks is when I started to kind of critique my own understanding of the Vietnam War, or I guess suppose the, the American War, and particularly the atrocities that the Americans committed against the Vietnamese people. Um, something that I feel like a lot of times might get washed away is like the sheer brutality that was uh, committed against uh, people of color, but specifically Viets during that war. Um, there was the rule, the Mir Guk rule, which was basically a license for American soldiers to eviscerate and brutalize any individual that they saw, even if they were an ally, which resulted in things like the My Lai Massacre, where hundreds of women and children were like murdered and raped, etc., because American imperialism has the, has the license to do those things around the world. Um, and connecting that kind of uh, brutality with Asian American history and the lineage of individuals who existed in this country before me and the analysis that they saw uh, and being galvanized by the war itself by living through that time, those relationships really connected the dots to me because the same forces, the same violence that is enacted by America as a settler colonial project abroad is the same violence that they used to enact against us in the streets during the protests and to suppress our capacity to organize and galvanize our people towards a point of self-determination. Um, and ultimately, like when we talk about what it means to be radicalized, it's not so much like, um, like I feel like a lot of the connotation that goes with that word is associated with like terrorists being radicalized, et cetera. A lot of it's like US State Department propaganda. But what it really means is just like getting to a point where you understand your relationship with the world and how to look at the world in a different way that forces you to reckon with the systems uh, that allow society to change. And ultimately, what really pushed me into the camp of like Marxist-Leninism is looking at imperialism and how that uh, affected like a, uh, what America means as a project and what it means to affect Vietnamese people uh, in that project. Yeah. Um, yeah, right on. I also think it's really interesting that you talk about, you know, like settler colonialism outside of the U.S., but actually like the U.S. was uh, the U.S.'s first settler colonial project, right? Because like you started with, you know, 13 colonies on the East Coast and then it uh, like, like how did that become the entire continent, right? Through 
settler colonialism and genocide. So, I mean, it's like if they're like, like just the origins of the U.S. itself is the imperialist project. So, I mean, I guess for me, it's like thinking about that history and thinking about, you know, like the history of Asia, just like the more I learn, the more I just realize like fundamentally at the core, uh, the the whole concept of the U.S. is not just like, oh, it's 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 not like a good idea that with flawed a- applications, it is fundamentally evil. Mm-hmm. That's exactly At right. The core. Yeah. And so like that, just like just learning history and, you know, what has happened to everybody, every single group, not just ours. That that makes me angry, and I I'm sure, yeah yeah you know and like that that's what like for me there wasn't any sort of like one instant it wasn't like a a mobilization instant that just like galvanized me I was just like more and more the more I learned the more um uh anti imperialist I get and the more radicalized I am. Yeah, um, I, I think a lot of it comes from being willing to learn all of these dark and ugly things, you know, because eventually if you do want to build a better world, you're going to have to not be afraid to have your own worldview shattered and rebuilt, you know. And if, yeah. if, if you want to talk about individual reflection and stuff like that, you have to make it meaningful, you know, like, oh, God, I hate fucking hate the word reflection, though. Like, I really hope... <laughs> I really kind of want that word to be just erased from Asian American vocabulary because it's being said so much. But the, the the kind of reflection and analysis that most of these, especially the liberal ones do, it's it's so surface level. You know, it kind of draws back to thinking that the model minority is being is isn't just a myth, and you know, kind of this mindset of being white adjacent. But really, why are you? are we participating in the settler colonial project anyway? It's because Western imperialism came to our homelands and disrupted life there. So then where else could we go? You know, like the Imperial Corps is the safest place to be when it's out ravaging other countries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. That's a great point. There's a book, um, I forget the name of the author, but the title is The Gift of Freedom. And it talks about how refugees are kind of uh, in this ontological debt to the United States, despite the fact that oftentimes America is the country that forced them to become refugees in the first place. So you are indebted to the country that is giving you freedom. And ultimately, that kind of contradiction is what forced me to reckon with like history and politics and what it means to radicalize yourself in the name of self-determination. Yeah, and in terms of um, like Asian Americans putting like centering themselves or uh decentering themselves i think that something that uh would actually be helpful for solidarity with other groups is to actually think about how your communities are suffering and to actually feel like you have that connection with you know the homeless man in chinatown who gets uh, stabbed to death mm-hmm. you know or like the sex worker who is uh, like a, a migrant who 
is like being abused by the police and throws herself off her balcony like that's not just some other person and you're in your little bubble like that is part of your community like those people have the same a similar face that you do and if something in your life if you were born in a different situation that would be you and like you need to be able to have that kind of connection to the people in your own community to be able to help in any meaningful way people in other communities like if you can't even do that then your allyship is complete bullshit yeah it's completely worthless yeah, yeah, because your whole concept of yourself is from the perspective of the oppressor and not the oppressed. Mm-hmm. So why, if you think that that's where you stand, why the fuck would you want to change anything? Exactly. I, th- yeah. I think that's another thing. Is I-, I think a lot of Asian Americans, especially if they've assimilated a little further, you know, like they kind of forget that we also are colonized people. And if we have to think about what we have in common with other colonized people as well, you know, like, and that's what, that's what all these black power activists from that time recognized as well. You know, like I think Asada Shakur, she said what she realized that the foot that's on her neck is the same foot that's on the neck of the Vietnamese and on oppressed people all around the world, you know? Um, but if Asians don't come to terms with that as well, we're not going to be able to help other colonized people. We we can't help from this from this pedestal of being some kind of benevolent privileged ally. You know that doesn't make sense. We're put on that pedestal by who? This we're put on that pedestal by white white society that wants that wants a puppet to be pacified and used as a bludgeon against other colonized people. You can recognize that we're playing into that, but then you also have to recognize that we got to fucking stop that too. Yeah. I think that kind of realization that um, uh, this person's oppression is the same as another group's oppression. Like those, those kind of connections were like severed like in terms of education or consciousness i just feel like modern day people they just don't under like people today just don't seem to have that connection of like um police brutality domestically is actually linked to um you know like all the other stuff that has happened all over the world like the wars of colonization Mm, in Asia and there's like a disconnect somehow between slavery, you know, in the past in the U S to like Jim Crow laws to the, uh, policing, like, like prison industrial complex. It's like people just see like somebody, you know, people just see like, oh, this is this is what's happening now. This is bad, but they don't see the connections. And I think that in the media, there aren't a lot of connections. There, it's like the, our media is so, I uh, like 
personalized and uh, disconnected. Like it's so focused on individual psychology and like like an individual uh, framework of uh, mental health, trauma, you know, PTSD, all of that, that there's no connection, there's no sociological perspective. And I think that's on purpose. I think so we don't question, or like if we do, we only question one subset, one arm of the whole like imperialist white supremacist project. And we are, and that allows us to be used as like a bludgeon, you know, to, for another arm, right? Cause it's like, yes, we are the model minority in the US, but it's because of, you know, how fucking brutalized our homelands were. And that's why we're here. And alternatively, like, yes, there is so much oppression of people of color in the US, but the military is one of the, uh, joining the military is one of the ways that people of color can actually improve their economic status in the U.S. And so you have lots of people of color joining the military and engaging in wars of colonization in Asia. So it's like, you got to see both of these things as equal as also bad, you know, like they're all bad. And you can't just be like, oh, I... I am for abolition of prisons. I'm a Marine. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you, can't, oh, you can't do that. <laughs> and like, the, like, those kinds of connections are just completely missing. Um, and, uh, I, yeah, everybody needs to just fucking take the time that you have now that uh, there's a pandemic and you can't do shit anyway to just fucking educate yourself and learn about all these things, you know? Like, I think that is what is significant about this, like, quote-unquote, mobilization moment is that it, it does have the potential for future organizing. And, like, that's something that I at least want to take advantage of and just, like, try to put as much content out there to as many people as possible to just like recognize this and fucking engage your asses, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, you're totally right. Uh, I was listening to this podcast called Hella Black and they had this really great uh, guest named uh, also Q on there. And he was talking about um, how historical illiteracy is the lifeblood of propaganda. And that line is just like, kind of sums up everything that we're talking about, that these institutions do this on purpose. They erase your history and they make you focus on this like locus of a conversation being privilege, privilege, privilege. It's all about privilege and your relative distance to whiteness without forcing you to reckon with the history that like allows you to understand the relationships between America with imperialism, with capitalism, um, and like most importantly, internationalism. Like uh, Malcolm X has a really great uh, speech when he talks to young people saying that America never feared him more than when he went to go talk uh, to other people around the world, like Fidel Castro, um, to Mao Zedong, etc. I think Huey P. Newton actually met him then. Um, but the point being that like these, yeah, he visited China. Mm -hmm, exactly. These revolutionaries became dangerous when they enlisted the help of individuals abroad who are also needing to form a united front against an imperial power. Um, the dominant culture doesn't want you to recognize 
that consolidation of a power base because they themselves are already doing that. And we can see that with like the increase in police brutality, increase increase in um, like the solidarity that police are doing in like Atlanta and New York Police Department where they're walking out because there's even like a modicum of a direction towards justice, towards uh, the individuals who are being harmed by the police. Like they recognize that their power base is being threatened. And so they are consolidating their power base. There's no reason why we shouldn't do the same thing. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, so I guess, you know, it's coming to terms with like trying to f- dig up what history that exists, but has been buried, you know, like a lot of people, when they, when they talk about, um, you know, going back to the yellow power and black power movements, you know, we forget that they were kind of cut from the same cloth, you know, like all these organizations, you know, what they all had in common with the black Panther party. Um, hello. They were Marxist Leninists. They were Maoists. Um, you know, he's, Malcolm X. He he visited China and he loved Mao. Uh, w. E. B. Du Bois. You know, he or is it Du Bois? I can't. I've never heard yeah. it said out loud. I've only I ever read his name. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, in in the U.S. It's Du Bois. That's how I've heard it. But like, yeah, because nobody pr- pronounces it the French way here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, like all these people, they built connections and learned from the figures that in the United States were taught to revile, you know, but we don't really think about why we're taught to hate them other than, oh, because they were all dictators that killed like a 11 Brazilian people or a whatever. Brazilian. <laughs> <laughs> is that is that what the that's that total now is you know the extra dark black book of communism? That's that's their updated I heard you figure. say the way I heard it. You said eleven Brazilian people. <laughs> <laughs> it's exponentially more than billion. It's Brazilian. <laughs> Enough people to fill three Brazils. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> but but yeah, like we don't you know, we don't really think past to like why we're we're told that this person was bad and then we kind of don't go any further from there, you know, like you know, like after after a certain point I was thinking about like why so many Vietnamese Americans hate Ho Chi Minh, you know. So mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. what did I decide to do? I looked up Ho Chi Minh ideology. I looked up his writings um, as president of the of the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. I looked at his writings when he lived in the United States, you know, and it was all very much like, wait, no, this guy is making sense. And everything he's saying now can still be applied today. Can you give us some examples um, I guess it's that it's that quote um that Ho Chi Minh wrote about uh, lynching, you know, like in you know in his day when he was living in the in the United States, uh, the KKK w- um was existing, and he talked about how like, wow, there really is no part of the human family more oppressed than the black race because after all these years of so called emancipation from slavery. There's still 
being downtrodden and so many failures and they're still bearing the brunt of so many failures of humanity, you know, and they're still the victims of a crime called lynching. I think that was specifically what he's talking about was lynching, but figures like him who are cognizant of how oppressed black people are and have always been, you know, I I'm wondering if that's why so much of their history and so much of the teachings that can be construed as positive is erased because in the end that really does paint a larger threat for white supremacy, isn't it? Is that how we have all these powerful figures standing behind black people and supporting them. But meanwhile, in the United States, we our politicians are like, mm, okay, black people, you can have human rights as a treat, you know, <laughs> <laughs> just some, yeah, some some human human sometimes. Yeah, I mean, the point you make about, like, Vietnamese diaspora being so, um, like, vehemently opposed to Ho Chi Minh, I think is a really good point to make as well. And that's also particularly by design, right? Like, many of them were strongly in support of the U.S. puppet government. They have, like, a material allegiance to a country that was propping up their capacity to have power and that was stripped from them by the communists achieving self-determination combine that with the history of you know Viet people being against China historically due to its colonization for like a thousand years or whatever it like makes sense that these uh, individuals become identifying with like things like the Republican Party and conservative ideology and there's a really good article in ProPublica uh, called the terror in little Saigon which talks about like the systematic ways in which these Viet diaspora like hunted down and suppressed leftist voices that formed in America because of like their ideology towards republicanism and like protecting the American project. It doesn't surprise me at all that like there's so few of Viet diaspora or VQ who would see themselves as leftists because there's a systematic approach to the brainwashing of this community that is even self-reinforcing by the community itself. Wait, so are you saying that like certain people within the Vietnamese diaspora um, were oppressing like the more leftist Vietnamese diaspora. I'd go as far as to say that they were like murdering journalists. Yeah. What? Um, yeah. Th- actually, um, there was there was a journalist who wrote for a magazine called the Ya, which um, is Vietnamese for freedom. You know, he was. I, I recall reading in, in Terror in Little Saigon, he was assassinated. And what happened is. All these people who, you know, they supported the South Vietnam, right? And they had material benefits. Some of them were also part of the government themselves. So you lose that power. You're not willing to let go of it. You come over here, you terrorize your own community. You're going to start paying off thugs to assassinate any threat, any, any perceived threat to that power you once held. Holy shit. So okay, would they would these people also be considered refugees? Um, yeah, I, I think they did gain refugee status because you know I, I think what constitutes being a refugee is that you're 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 fearful of persecution from like the ruling government, right? Yeah, like um, and that's and that's basically what would happen. They they gain refugee status and escape justice because a lot of people they participated in a government that you know would torture and silence communists in South Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the fact that's like really uh, kind of washed over is that there were many supporters of the, like communism in South Vietnam. And that's kind of the history that's erased, but they were 
violently suppressed, murdered, tortured by the South Vietnamese government uh, in favor of like the narrative that like the U.S. just pulled out because things were too hard, but they wish they could have stayed to prop up this beautiful uh, bastion of freedom in Vietnam. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of a lot of Vietnamese today, like if if some of them, despite being far right anti-communist, you know, some of them kind of almost wish the United States had stayed out of it. I don't know how that would have worked if the United States had never become involved in the first place, but they are very much like North South separatist. Um, and they like when they talk about South Vietnam, they talk about it as if it were south korea well u.s occupied korea today and wow. all of that is only possible because of the support of the united states um yeah the the nostalgia is definitely still there and it it kind of it's rotting their consciousness um, <laughs> yeah literally it's like brain rot um, yeah. I'd go as far as to say that, like, in some of the kind of groups that I'm in on Facebook, just keeping track of what, like, old people are saying, some of them will even go as far as to say that, like, um, like the black radicals who uh, kind of supported Indo-Chinese refugee status in America for them to come over and, like, participating in the anti-war movement were directly responsible for the United States pulling out and therefore are, like, a bad thing. Even though oh my God. Like, Civil Rights Act of 1964, et cetera, allowed for 65 and then like later, uh, you know, allowed for Vietnamese refugees to come to the United States. But because they were anti-war, they are therefore against the project of the South Vietnamese puppet government. And they're therefore. Oh, bad. my God. I See, like I feel like <laughs> this stuff is what, um, you know, these young Asian liberals should be questioning their parents about. You know, it's like, this is totally anti-black, mm -hmm. but it's for like totally different reasons, you know, and it's not steeped in white supremacy, uh, you know, in, in our understanding of it domestically. It's like there's so many layers of uh, colonial complicity and that just completely like, like they just don't. Yeah, you're right. They have not the imagination for it. Yeah. Um. It's like, you know, it, it doesn't come from white supremacy, but it definitely runs parallel to it, you know, mm -hmm. and, and we kind of see today how um, Asian Americans conception of having their own power, it kind of almost fulfills the ideals of white supremacists kind of like when Asians started arming themselves to protect their jewelry stores and laundromats from, you know, the riots, you know. Mm -hmm. white supremacists were fucking happy about that um we should probably weaponize that kind of unthreatening status of white supremacy in order to turn that around you know but asian americans don't really want to go that far i feel like right you were saying how uh they would arm themselves individually but there's no organization and there's no um solidarity with the people who are protesting yeah mm -hmm. like um i think i think the counterpoint one person brought up with me is that um hey actually did actually asians actually did arm themselves to protect themselves from like covid19 racism you know but was it really to protect their communities or just to protect themselves because let's see um with the threat of hate crimes happening in new york chinatown you know asian 
the people living there, they relied on the assistance of an outside organization, the Guardian Angels, to patrol New York Chinatown, you know? It wasn't mm-hmm. it wasn't armed residents of New York Chinatown doing it. It was on it was another organization. So Yeah, see, we just need the ethnic gangs back. We need the tongs back. <laughs> Bring back the tongs, baby. <laughs> actually that's a funny thing like triad societies they still exist today they're just they kind of operate as you know benevolent societies kind of like um housing tong in in seattle they they mm-hmm. were there's they were they're triads but you know they're not doing all that triad business that we would typically think about in like the old hong kong crime movies and stuff like that you know they still mm-hmm. exist i mean but a lot of those societies were benevolent you know, like they were dangerous in some ways and criminal in some ways and benevolent in some ways. It's just it's just a infrastructure to protect your community when uh, the outside, the, you know, the official like policing isn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, like I, I think that kind of all goes back to like, why are we so afraid of organize, organizing ourselves? You know, like. Isn't it more meaningful if we show up as a community instead of just as individual people? You know, like if, if we want to talk about how Asian Americans fail to show up for black for for black Americans, you know, okay, it's a perfect time to make up for it and be like, hey, we're Asian, we recognize our past failures, we're standing with you now. Um well, as I mean, to- I think just just like the discussion we just had kind of answers your own question right because they don't have the class solidarity and they're like parallel like a lot of the people who only want allyship or don't care you know they they're part of the class that is um comfortable being puppets of white supremacy this whole time you know in our home countries and now here and they have basically uh, killed or deported or silenced anybody who uh, tries to mobilize. Yeah, um, that's definitely it. Like for a long time, I thought that a lot of people ma- making graphics, right, and talking about like decentering yourselves and all that jazz. I-, I hope that's the last time I ever say that word. By the way, <laughs> decenter. Um, yeah, it's. I thought it was genuinely from a place of goodwill at first, like, because there, there is a concern that, Hey, we're making this struggle all about ourselves for some reason. But then you think, but, and there, you know, there are no doubt some people that do, you know, they'll, they'll repost art that says yellow pale support black power. And then they'll leave it at that, you know, and that's, that's definitely a concern, but I'm starting to see past it and realize how insidious it is and it's just more it's it's a subtle call for passivity mm-hmm. is what yeah, it, it's silencing mm-hmm. yeah it's calling for inaction that's fundamentally what they want they're like demobilizing people they're disarming them making them think that like the sufficient action to take is just to sit on the sidelines and do nothing yeah um and I, I mean, some people still do, you know, they, it's, they have the right concept and poor execution, you know, like that, I think the most recent graphic that was talking about, um, 
I, I was really upset about it, how it claimed that um, the Yellow Power Movement was ripping off the Black Power Movement. But then they had these suggestions that they had um, to make your solidarity um, more meaningful. You know, and they weren't proposing that we, you know, sign petitions and campaign and call our representatives and all that shit. You know, one of their suggestions was to go beyond the front lines at a protest and shield Black protesters from police, you know. But in my opinion, that that delves into the framework of being an accomplice, not an ally anymore. You know, I, I think. What um, do you mean by an accomplice? So let's see. So this is, um, this is something I picked up as well from the, uh, from the article by Dr. Janelle K. Hope. Um, it was, it's, um, there, there's an activist in Sacramento by the name of Feng Lei and there, they had this, um, city city hall meeting um hold on i'm looking at the page right now okay so there was a city hall um like a year after the shooting death of stephen clark and the district attorney um Anne marie schubert of sacramento said she would not charge the officers responsible for clark's death so there started being protests and they had um a city hall meeting where uh, a, a black man named Alexander Clark, um, no relation to Stephen, he jumped on the table that was designed for civilians to deliver public comments. And he ended up getting swarmed by police officers with batons, you know, but then a Vietnamese woman named Feng Lei and another white man, they jumped up on the table with him and they formed a human barrier between Alexander Clark and the officers. Um, mm -hmm. So that, so it's, so then uh, a woman who recorded the video and narrated, her name was, her name is Ebony Janice. She talks about um, how like an ally will stay home, but an accomplice will go to jail with you if, if they have to, you know? So. Okay. Yeah. So you're saying accomplice in a positive way. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. It's. Standing in solidarity, like, let's see, um, if I can read from the article, it says, the framework of accompliceship recognizes that standing in solidarity with oppressed people is in some cases a criminal act where one is quite literally an accomplice. The willingness to put one's body, freedom, and livelihood on the line for others and to challenge an injustice is accompliceship. Accompliceship always necessitates risk and the abandonment of self-interest for the sake of collective liberation and justice. Um, so, yeah, you know, yeah, it, it recognizes that at sometimes, you know, you're going to have to take illegal actions to help people sometimes. And that's what calls for allyship often aren't is it's, it mm. pushes people to keep working inside the and inside the system and like, you know, pursue very low risk actions. But, you know, sometimes right. do more than that to, to challenge an, un an unjust system in the first place. Yeah, that's a totally... That's a really powerful point. I was reading about, you know, Martin Luther King and what, you know, like the organization that he was actually doing. And like the protests back then were totally different from the protests, you know, like the kind of like allyship type protest, because he was actually you know, doing stuff that was illegal. Like they weren't just, you know, staying within this like zone of protest with like three police cars uh, tailing you. It wasn't within, you know, like they were 
nonviolent, but they were confrontational. They were trying to get that get the public riled up to get the police riled up so that people could see the see you know like firsthand the brutality that they're capable of mm-hmm. so and you know like the white allies I, I i think back then the word ally meant accomplice ship now right because those white people they were marching and doing sit-ins. They were getting beat the fuck up. Yeah, they're getting their shit beaten. Yeah, and I feel like when people talk about allyship now, like the petitions and just like the nice, uh, you know, like at, in Harvard Square, there's protests, but they're just basically they look like just you know a like bunch a, of white people standing on a lawn. It was like a picnic. Yeah, it's a picnic. That's what it looks like. And it's like that kind of allyship is easy. But like would you would you go to a protest at 12 p.m. or sorry, 12 a.m. where there's national guardsmen waiting to crack your skulls? Like that's totally different. Mm-hmm. You know? And I mean f- there's Asians and white people and lots of other people who are going and doing the accomplish accomplice ship that kind of work too and to just erase that and be like no no we gotta be allies like that's kind of bullshit yeah absolutely Mm, like people really want to go for any kind of easy win they can without really analyzing whether or not it's an actual win you know like you see all these protests where people are trying to like get the police officers to march with them or they think getting the cops to fucking kneel with them is some kind of win no you're you're defanging the movement mm-hmm. like you know diana you and i were from the same city right that fucking mm-hmm. video of people in a park doing the cupid shuffle with the cops <laughs> yeah god That's disgusting like, no i totally understand i mean it was um emil clark cabral who said claim no easy victories right because if the victory is easy if they are giving it to you it means it's it's state sanctioned they gave it to you as a concession that doesn't mean that you stole it from them it doesn't mean that you claimed a victory yeah i i just looked at the video and i was like i hope they paid you to dance because if you did that with no money you gain nothing you gain negative from that Mm-hmm. yeah no they they definitely did that all for free especially like you know we talk about like in the midwest there being a lot of red states you know the liberalism mm-hmm. there is still just as strong oh yeah especially in the cities mm-hmm. okay i think this is a good place to end actually um do you guys have any last thoughts like just maybe like and on a maybe we should talk about like the positive stuff that we want to that we believe in and that we want to see happen i mean i think the main takeaway of this pod is to get involved you know like there your activism should not stop at uh sharing things on your instagram story or like starting a book club or whatever it should be yes reading more, reading the right things, not just like white fragility or whatever the fuck. Um, and then joining an organization, a radical org that's actually putting boots on the ground to help mobilize people into a position to have better material 
realities. Like a lot of the work that you're going to be doing is not like glorious. You know what I mean? Like a lot of the work is going to be mundane or tedious, helping people, you know, have things like crossing guards and stuff like that in their communities. But it's meaningful work. It allows them a chance to have systems in place that can support them, establish mutual aid networks, which are more important than ever right now. Um, and I think that's the kind of actions that we need to be taking as a community. And that's the basis for revolutionary action to challenge systems. Yeah. And um, also making sure that whatever action you take, it came paired with, you know, political education, you know, like mm-hmm. that, that's another thing I'm really grateful for is seeing like a lot of my friends in the Asian creative network, they're sharing resource guides, you know, and included you have all these writings of dr king and malcolm x but then they have an entire separate folder for black communism and black socialism you know that's a really great wow on acn well not on acn but just friends from acn oh okay Um, okay but you know it's still a step in the right direction you know like it's it i could potentially see it you know snowballing and, you know, with all these Asians that are well-intentioned and actually want to focus on um, making sure that they're not taking away from Black voices and Black experiences, you know, that they that they read Black revolutionaries like Huey Newton and Asada Shakur, you know, mm-hmm. and just like what those people would advise you to do, that they also read Marx, you know, <laughs> so <laughs> hopefully, yeah. hopefully it also goes in that direction, you know, like it's it's very slow and I think because of disconnecting ourselves from our history in like the 60s and 70s, you know, we're a little behind the curve, but, you know, surely we'll come back to it. Yeah. I mean, uh, our, that disconnect is also by design, you know, not just in terms of like, uh, the media narratives, but, uh, you know, like a lot of the immigrants to like from Asia are, are newer you know it's like we don't have the generations of experience in uh understanding white supremacy and racism that uh, other communities have and i think that we should also you know like have a little have a little empathy you know like not have lower standards but just understand why some people are the way they are and yeah i really like what you said about you know like the people close to you in your life teaching you things and sharing things so i think for me um the big takeaway is just like to educate yourself as much as possible and as much as you you can to educate other people because this this is a unique time in which people are more willing to listen than others you know like I've yelled at so many white people, <laughs> <laughs> and it feels good. Yeah, it feels good. It's, it's, it's a small pleasure. Yeah. yeah. Like definitely. Like also like when we uncover our history and figure out where to move forward from there, there are still people from that generation that are still alive. You know, like surviving members of the League of Revolutionary Struggle and surviving members of the Red Guards Party. They're still mm-hmm. around. We just have to look for them and you know ask them what their experiences were. Right. I mean, that'd be awesome if we could find find people and to like ask them to be on our pod or something. Even yeah. like um, we don't have enough of those voices. Definitely. Uh, like I don't know. It's kind of weird because like 
they're low key, but also at the same time, they're still doing work, you know. But mm-hmm. yeah, wherever they are, we need to find them because <laughs> we need yeah. them right now. Yeah, for real. Yeah, we could use some leadership. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, that was another episode of Escape from Plan A. Thank you all for listening. If you like what you heard, please share it uh, and rate us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, anywhere there's uh, podcasts. And of course, consider joining our Patreon. Thanks so much. Have a great day.